Hi, I'm Rob Langton from Development Ready. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. Our next guest this morning is David Kobritz, Executive Chairman and Managing Director of Deal Corporation. David, thanks so much for your time. Walk us through your upbringing in, in Melbourne. Where did you grow up and what are some of your earliest childhood memories? Ah, uh, Well, I was born in uh, Melbourne in the early 50s. My parents migrated to Australia in 1951 from China and uh, they had a Russian background and... Uh, Lived in uh, China uh, pre-war. Grew up in mainly in Beaumaris. My father was a mad fisherman and uh, he was out in the water uh, half the week, I think, at four o'clock in the morning and I'd join him about 10 o'clock after I woke up. He was also with uh, close friends and business colleagues involved in uh, property as well. And uh, as a young kid, I can remember uh, sitting in the back of the car while they'd go out looking at uh, properties around uh, the uh, eastern suburbs or southeastern suburbs of Melbourne and uh, listening in. So I guess uh, property uh, was uh, embedded in uh, my uh, psyche at a pretty young age. Now, as I understand it, you studied a Bachelor of Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne, which you completed around 1974. Why did you study that and, and what did you learn from that degree? Well, I actually started architecture. I wanted to be an architect, but uh, after starting architecture, were, uh, a year of that quickly uh, fixed me and said, uh, no way do I want to be an architect. And uh, the urban planning school at uh, Melbourne Uni was in its infancy so uh, I uh, had a look at that and I thought uh, well we'll give that a go and uh, that was uh, that was an interesting exercise because mainly it taught you the discipline of uh, all the regulations and so forth but also it was really a, a course that got you prepared to work for government whether it was the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works back those days as the main planning authority or, or a council and that didn't particularly interest me but uh, I completed the degree and then went into planning and project management. And how long were you in that sort of field? I know we'll, we'll get into the origins of Deal Corp shortly but how long were you involved in that career and, and that position? For probably mid-70s to about mid-80s. I was working for consultants and then for my own uh, project management and, and uh, planning firm and uh, did a lot of work at the time for uh, Coles while they were establishing Kmarts and so forth around uh, uh, Victoria and uh, a number of developers as well. So uh, got involved quite early days in putting projects together and giving planning and design and project management advice and I uh, quickly made up my mind that uh, I wanted to be in the development space rather than the consulting space. And you went and did that with the launch of Deal Corporation in around 1984. What was the impetus for starting the business and what was your mandate back then for development? I was actually in a client's office and uh, I met uh, 
a fellow there and uh, we, uh, we got to know one another quite well and uh, he gave me the impetus to go out on my own and, and actually undertake development and uh, he became a close friend and a backer for the next decade or so. It was a time where we saw opportunities in the early days of mainly refurbishing existing buildings a lot of residential buildings, a lot of old blocks of uh, flats in those days that were built in the 50s and 60s in Melbourne that uh, were quite tired and uh, we could buy the, the whole block and uh, undertake uh, renovations, strata title and sell them. So we did that for about five or six years and then um, we also, at the t uh, in the mid to late 80s, we earmarked the uh, office market, but particularly the suburban office market is a market that had a lot of potential and, and growth and uh, we got involved in uh, developing quite a few suburban offices uh, at the time. And give us an idea of Melbourne in the 1980s, how different was it to today and how different was the actual process of developing? Well, I think uh, the development game then was far simpler. I mean, a uh, number of examples, uh, I don't think we ever went to VCAT. You'd go to a, the local council and uh, sit down with the planner and you'd have uh, three or four or five meetings. You'd virtually pull out the tracing paper and you design the, the building with the planner and uh, you'd get your permit and... Uh, there was nothing like pre-sales in those days. If you're building apartments, it got the permit, got the builder, got the finance, and you started building. We sold as we built, and whatever was left over, you'd sell three, four, five months uh, after completion. So today, of course, you've got to go through this massive, expensive process of uh, pre-sales and marketing that adds millions of dollars of cost to every project. And of course then uh, you'd have your architect, your engineer and maybe one or two other consultants. And, but today you need a, a football team of consultants and uh, um, reports that are a mile high and uh, to uh, ensure you tick all the boxes of the regulators. I don't know whether they're ever read but uh, you've got to produce them. And, and the other aspect of course is we'd build seven days a week. There was no such thing as nine-day fortnights. And uh, so uh, the whole process was far simpler, far quicker. Uh, and uh, over the decades, the industry's just become so over-regulated uh, that it's actually a highly inflationary system, given the, uh, the cost of the creation of a project from the time we acquire it right through the planning and sales process to eventual completion. The, uh, the hard work is done before we actually start building, that's the easy part. And just on that, how, how much of an impact do you think all those costs that you have to carry, the taxes and the regulations and that sort of thing, how much of a, an impact does that have on housing affordability? I don't know whether anyone's actually sat down and done the numbers, but uh, it would add an enormous amount, whether it's 20%, 30% or more to the cost of a project. Uh, it's just the time it takes to go through 
the, uh, the planning process that can take two, three, four years, sometimes even longer. Uh, the pre-sale process, the marketing process, uh, and often, you know, a project that perhaps we could have done in two or three years in the 80s would today take at least double that amount of time. Take us through the growth of DealCorp as a business. What are some of the more notable projects you've developed over the years? We've really concentrated on opportunity and location. We've always said the secret's in the buying. You've got, to, you've got to have patience, you've got to buy well, and, uh, and you can't chase the market in terms of, even if it's a rising market, you can't keep chasing it because the market can turn very quickly. Uh, so our projects have been uh, largely in Melbourne uh, because that's our home base and we know the market very well. Uh, and it's been a spread from CBD, refurbished buildings for apartments or new apartment buildings through to inner city, through to outer suburban, but it's very much concentrated in areas where we feel we know, we know the market and we're comfortable with the market and if the market turns, that location will still stand up reasonably well as against some areas where there might be overdevelopment or, uh, or the margins in terms of price uh, decreases could be quite significant. And take us through the DealCorp business today in terms of who's involved in the business and where are some of those projects located that you're either marketing now or that have recently been completed? We've got a very tight-knit group in the office. We really see ourselves as a management company. We see property as a very big, complex jigsaw puzzle that needs careful day-to-day -day management that's got to be brought together. So we've got a team of in-house development managers, in-house uh, sales and marketing, uh, obviously the finance side, the accounting side and the administration side, but everything else is outsourced in terms of our principal consultants and uh, construction. We got a variety of projects, we've got about 14, 15 projects on our books at the moment and they may vary from uh, we've got the development rights uh, through the state government authorities on two of the uh, railway uh, station sites where the level crossings have been removed and the stations have gone below ground. One is uh, Gardner Station in Burke Road, Glen Iris. We'll be building uh, commencing in January next year with uh, uh, 118 apartments and some retail uh, on the ground level uh, facing onto the station plaza. Also got the development rights for Ormond Station in North Road, Ormond. And we've recently got planning approval there for about 290 dwellings plus 7,000 square metres of retail, so uh, wrapping around the station. So that will probably go ahead in 12 to 18 months. Um, and then there are other... Uh, we had a project that's now been going nine years out at uh, Bandura. Uh, Plenty Road, Bandura, where we bought an 11 hectare site from uh, the state government, former La, La Rundle, uh, Psychiatric Hospital site. 
It's got two common frontages with La Trobe University and it's a 14 stage project, mixed use of uh, again retail, residential, new residential refurbishment of some heritage buildings and some commercial there and we've completed now, uh, we're just about to complete our 10th stage and we've got two more stages uh, to run. So at any one time you've got anywhere between 5 to 15 projects on the go ranging in value between 30 to 300 million dollars. What are the fundamentals you consider when analysing an opportunity? You've got to buy, well you can't put a noose around our neck from day one and uh, and hope the market rises. So it's really comes down to the real disciplines of, uh, of property in terms of the right location, the where we see the growth in the market, whether it be residential or commercial, and uh, the risk from a planning point of view, because uh, that is that has become a major risk uh, today, given the uh, complexity of the controls. And in which sectors are you seeing? You mentioned there opportunity and, and growth. So, in which sectors are you seeing the most opportunity at the moment? Well, we've uh, had a large concentration on the residential sector, the inner, middle, suburban uh, multi-unit market, whether it be townhouses or apartments. I still think, given the demographics of our society and the ageing population, that that is still a, uh, uh, a growth market. It's certainly been tempered by uh, the projected decrease, or not uh, decrease in the growth of population, uh, which is uh, we're starting to experience now and will continue to experience in the next few years, and the decrease in investors. But I think, given the structure of our society, where there's the there's so much invested by families in their home. That's generally their key asset. And in many, many circumstances, that asset needs to be liquidated for various reasons. And, uh, uh, and uh, the family doesn't need the, uh, the big family home, whether it be you know, in the outer suburbs or the inner suburbs. And the, the growth of the value of that asset has been so substantial in the last decade that that has created the, the opportunity in a way to liquidate and, and change a lifestyle. And given that then, are there any sectors that you're avoiding at the moment? Oh, it's not really avoiding, it's just really, you've only got a certain number of hours in a day, so you can't look at, uh, at every sector. But uh, the world just changes so quickly, the, the economy changes so quickly that every project has got to have the flexibility to change with it, whether it's the, the size of apartments that we're building or the design aspect or actual change of use within a project. You gave a webinar, I think, around a, a month or two months ago where you spoke about Australia and, and Melbourne being an attractive destination for development. You've been developing here for some 36 years. What is it that, that you think Melbourne offers from a, from a property developer perspective? Well, I think diversity. I think it's an extremely attractive 
uh, city to live in. It, it offers almost everything you can get anywhere around the world. It offers great uh, education for uh, both tertiary and uh, secondary education. That's a huge uh, attraction for people to come to Melbourne. Lifestyle in Melbourne is, is fantastic from sporting, culture. Uh, it's easy to get to our uh, uh, rural areas, whether it's the beach or the, the hills and so forth around Melbourne. So uh, I think it's, uh, and, the, and of course it's now reached a stage where with a population of five million people, it can, it's almost self-perpetuating in that respect. Um, whether it reaches eight million people, whenever that's projected, is, uh, is another question altogether. But I think now government is also uh, going to improve the quality of life in Melbourne with the investment in infrastructure that's uh, already commenced and, uh, and the programs in place for that to continue. And as I mentioned, you've been developing for over 35 years now, so you would have seen a lot of new market entrants, a lot of new property developers come into the space over the past 10 to 20 years. How are you finding the process of site acquisition? Is it a lot more competitive now than it was 20 years ago? And, and how do you navigate through that? Yeah, well, it's, there are many more players, you know, every second person you run into is a developer <laughs> until probably the last six or 12 months. Uh, you've just got, you need a lot of patience and you've got to be cautious and, uh, and uh, as I said earlier, you just, you know, you, you, you've got to be careful how much you pay for sites and uh, we've had a lot of developers enter the market and syndicates enter the market and they might, they might have a different agenda than we would as a traditional developer. You know, <clears throat> from our point of view, we don't need to acquire more sites. If we've got 15 projects today, that's gonna keep us busy for the next four or five years. Uh, so my attitude is just be patient if the right project comes along, that's fine. But uh, uh, the other aspect, of course, is because we've got a reputation for uh, delivery and uh, an integrity in the marketplace built up over that uh, uh, period of time for 36 years, we get offered a, a lot of uh, opportunities offside. And how are you finding the lending environment at the moment? Yeah, well, that's difficult. I think uh, we're in an era where uh, of zero risk or minimal risk. So we've seen the major banks pull right back from the development space. And we've seen the growth of the uh, second tier lenders, the, the private equity markets. And, uh, and that's probably here to stay. And, uh, and they've got a large slice of the market now and will probably have an increasing slice of that market. I think we've also seen the um, uh, the super funds enter the development space either on their uh, own accord or through joint ventures and that'll be a growth area as well. Of course we're in a era of very low interest rates. I mean I've never seen it in, in uh, my working life um, and uh, 
I've seen more at the other end of the scale than, uh, than where we are at the moment, so that all ma makes me a bit nervous as, uh, as how long can we sustain these low interest rates, but uh, it looks like they're here for a, for a while longer. And that's, of course, you know, encourages uh, more investment and, of course, uh, people taking the uh, uh, opportunity to upgrade or change uh, their lifestyle as well. So David, I wanted to ask you, as I mentioned, you've been in, in business for a long period of time. Take us through the most challenging periods in the history of Deal Corp. When were they and, and how have you managed to navigate your way through difficult economic periods? We've probably been through three, I think, major downturns in the 36 years. Uh, of course, the late 80s, early 90s, when Interest rates were through the roof at 18, 20%. And it was the early days of the company. Uh, and uh, we uh, had projects on the go then. And fortunately, we built up a portfolio of investments at the same time. And between uh, some projects that we had to liquidate, we uh, were fortunate enough to have substantial equity in our uh, investments to be able to uh, carry the pain on the one side uh, and maintain the, um, the business and, uh, and the potential growth of the business. So that was a, a difficult, uh, probably four or five year period. But it's, as we came out of it, there was tremendous opportunities because we purchased existing buildings at uh, well below replacement value and uh, and they were largely office buildings we refurbished those and uh, and that created the platform for the next round of growth uh, for the business and then um, the GFC period uh, a decade or more ago again we had a number of projects and we had uh, finance in place for those projects and then suddenly the finance was withdrawn on two or three of those projects. So uh, that set the company back in terms of being able to proceed, but at the same time gave us a little bit of breathing space to reset things and refinance things and, and uh, we grew from there. And in the last year or two, we've seen uh, not only the COVID period, but even preceding the COVID period where the industry was going through a credit squeeze um, in 2018, 2019, and uh, finance was much harder to get. And then, of course, we've had COVID since uh, then. And uh, we've not only, from a development aspect, that has slowed down and construction has uh, slowed down or been delayed, uh, but uh, our rental income portfolio also suffered and we spent half our time dealing with tenant issues in the last six months and, and assisting our tenants through this period. Now, that's an ongoing uh, matter that we're dealing with almost on a daily basis and uh, I expect that's going to continue well into 2021. Uh, before we see any, hopefully, satisfactory resolution. 
that segues nicely into my next question, which is you were vocal earlier in the year in relation to large corporates refusing to pay rent, even at discount rates. How do you navigate this challenge and have you found corporate tenants more willing to repay the rents back uh, to the properties now that we're, you know, later in the year? I mean, our experience by and large was there might have been a period of try-on between landlords and tenants uh, earlier in the year. And uh, now, by and large, the communications uh, back to where it should be. Tenants are uh, explaining their situation, providing the evidence, and as long as the communication is there, we can deal with that and we can assist where we can. Uh, I think where there's been lack of communication, that's caused the, the problems. Now, no doubt over the past three decades that you've been in business, there's been opportunities to expand interstate, in particular, no doubt, to Sydney. Why have you always stuck to Melbourne when we've seen a few other developers that have been in business for the same period of time often expand into Sydney? I think we've been extremely busy in Melbourne for the last, call it, 15 years. And there's only a certain number of hours in a day. And if I was... 10 or 20 years younger, I probably uh, would have taken that step. But uh, given I'm not 10 or 20 years younger and I'm uh, and we've been very busy in the Melbourne market, that's been our concentration. Reflecting on your career, what would you say are your proudest achievements? I think really our uh, uh, reputation in the industry, the integrity, we, we do what we say we do. Uh, we, we do what we say we will do and we deliver and uh, sometimes things, things can get difficult or delayed in this market but we really stick to our guns and make sure that we deliver on every project and we're there for whether it's our tenants or our clients as purchasers if there are issues we're always there to assist. What's the best deal and what's the worst deal that you've done? I suppose there were a, there were a couple of uh, projects in the uh, in the early 90s that uh, cost us quite a bit of money in the downturn uh, and uh, oh god in terms of uh, best deals well you know often I'll reflect the building we're sitting in now we built uh, 12, 13 years ago here in Cremorne, we bought this site at 6,000 a metre, at 6,000 square metres, we paid 1,200 a metre uh, and we did quite well out of it and this is one of a number of examples. Today the site would probably be valued at close to 15,000 a metre, so we might have done far better doing nothing and sitting on our haunches, and there's quite a few examples of that, but that's all, you know, at a point in time in a, when a market's been rising, there are other points in time where the market hasn't gone that way, so, uh, but uh, we did, uh, I recall, we did in the, in the late 80s, when I talked about the suburban office market, uh, we bought five or six sites in the inner east of Melbourne, and I think we only developed one of them because the 
price was rising so rapidly, we got our permit and sold them very quickly for very little investment. So uh, they were pretty good deals back then. Now, for developers watching this or aspiring developers, what would be your two or three key pieces of advice that you could potentially pass on? Need uh, a lot of patience. Don't don't jump in on a whim. <laughs> Do your research <laughs> and uh, make sure the pockets are deep enough to uh, to get through a downturn or a slowdown. <laughs> now, two questions to finish. One, outside of property development, you're heavily involved in horse racing and have been for some time. Take us through where this interest originated from and how the passion has grown over the years that you've been involved. Oh, well, <clears throat> it stems from my university days where I had a few mates who were uh, involved in, uh, well, like going to the races and uh, I didn't know one end of a horse from another, but we uh, uh, we used to go there to uh, have a few drinks and a good time and chase a few girls and, uh, and uh, one day, five or six years after uni finished, uh, we got together and uh, we... Uh, ended up with a relatively inexpensive horse that won uh, nine races in town. So uh, we were well and truly hooked. And, uh, and uh, but So during the 80s, I had interest in a few horses and then uh, met Lee Friedman when he moved from Sydney to Melbourne in the 80s. And uh, uh, Lee convinced me to take a, a quarter share in a grey horse that he'd bought. Uh, in 1988 and that horse turned out to be Sub-Zero that won the Melbourne Cup in 1992 so uh, I should have given it away after that but uh, you go through that experience you want to relive it uh, time and time again. (laughs) As you mentioned there you've had success in in Group 1 races and and other prestigious races what does it take to win the Melbourne Cup and what's the feeling like post post win? What's it take to win a Melbourne Cup? I mean a lot of luck 99% luck and some good management (laughs) by the trainer and, and jockey I guess. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, well, racing's changed dramatically from those days to today where it's far more internationalised. Uh, we're importing horses or the industry's importing horses or you can go and buy horses anywhere in the world to, to race here. Or uh, So it's uh, dramatically different. The feeling of winning a race like that's... Uh, is incredible. You just, uh, you hope, you hope you've got the right horse that's been trained to the minute and uh, everything goes right on the day. So it's all got to fall in place. It's like the property jigsaw puzzle that's eventually got to come together for a successful development. (laughs) David, that's a good note to end on. Thanks so much for your time this morning and thanks for sharing your insights. Pleasure to have you on.